Hey, the robbers. Can I use your telephone? What is your name, young man? Tom Campbell, Special Constabulary, K Division. Yes, yes, yes. And can you tell me the date? The date? Oh, I see. You want to know if I'm all right? Yes, it's March the 31st. Now can I use your telephone? We're arriving, Grandfather. Oh, good. I'm afraid you can't use the telephone. For one thing, we haven't got one. And even if we had, I don't think it would do any good. Not in 2150 AD. Welcome to episode 63 of The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and tonight I am joined once again by your friend and mine, Steve Sullivan. Or Stephen hey. Sullivan. Which which we go by, Steve or Stephen? I, I go by Steve, except in, in formal work occasions, in which case it's Stephen D. Sullivan. <laughs> formal. Well, I'm glad we're not formal. Well, you know, I mean, it's like Stan Lee's Stanley Lieber, and he... He adopted Stan Lee for his comics work, and I'm I'm Steve, generally, generally. But for anything that I want to put my name on, I'm Stephen Diesel. Well, cool. Tonight we've got you back because we want to do the second and sadly final Peter Cushing Doctor Who film from the 1960s. Uh, we covered the first one several months ago, back way back in 2017. Wow, we were so young then. We were. We were, and we're not getting any younger. <laughs> yeah, tell me about that. And one of the things that pointed that out to me was just uh, look at, looking at the youthful appearance of Peter Cushing in this film and remembering, wow, this is like 11 years before Star Wars. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. It's like he looks like a, they've made him up as an old man. <laughs> and he still looks younger than he did, you know, in 1977. So Right. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's one of those things that so my wife says people looked older back then. We were watching the more recent Doctor Who special in which Peter Capaldi is paired up with a, a guy whose name is slipping my mind right now and shouldn't, who is playing the original Doctor. And at one point, the the old Doctor played by a new actor says, I thought I'd be younger when he discovers that the Doctor Who was has uh, regenerated since then and Capaldi kind of gives him this look and the inside joke there is that Capaldi is exactly the same age as the first guy that played Doctor Who. Oh wow, really? Yeah, he's the same age now Yeah, and I'm the same age now as William Hartnell was when he was playing the Doctor which everyone thinks of the Hartnell Doctor as the old Doctor. Yeah. But he and Capaldi and I, creepily enough, are all the, <laughs> the same exact age. Well, I'm the same age as, as Capaldi now. And Capaldi is the same age as Hartnell was when he played Doctor Number One. Well, you, you don't sound a day past 30, so. <laughs> Good. Well, my brain thinks I'm 23, so there you go. Yeah, my brain thinks I'm roughly 31. My body thinks I'm roughly 92, so. <laughs> Right. Well, there is, there is that. Let's go. Let's see. Uh, tonight's film. Uh, here's the thing. 
what you have to understand is that uh, both these films feature not just a, uh, a kind of ersat Doctor Who, uh, but also the Daleks. And of the two, the only one that really is real, I guess, is the Daleks. And that's actually what Milton Sabosky, the producer of these films, purchased the rights to do, which is to make feature films of Dalek stories. Because in the mid-60s, when these movies were produced, Daleks were the biggest of deals. Um, Daleks were everywhere. They were the monster du jour. If you were in Britain from roughly 1963 to 1967 or 8, not only did you know what a Dalek was, um, you were probably sick of them. Right. <laughs> and you probably had some in your house and on the shelves and and they'd basically taken over the the earth uh, without all the <laughs> nasty side effects of Daleks really taking over the earth. As yeah, yeah, in yeah. our Except, movie today, Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD. 1966 uh directed once again by Gordon Fleming, the fellow who made uh, the previous film and once again uh, written by Milton Sabosky, or um, as I would more accurately put it, adapted by Milton Sabosky, because uh, what he did was once again take one of the existing Doctor Who stories, multi-part stories from the television series, and turn it into a feature-length film script. Um, I have seen the uh, story that this is based on, but it has been so long ago that uh, my memory has faded Quite a bit. Let's just put it that way. To the point right, where like the original I said, story uh, is yeah. by Terry Nation, who's the creator of the Daleks, and this was the second Dalek serial in Doctor Who. The first one being the Daleks, uh, which followed immediately after the Doctor Who origin story, an unearthly child. So this was the second time the Daleks had appeared in the television show. It was a six episode arc which is a little longer than the usual four episode arc and each show runs approximately 24 minutes including titles credits and always has a cliffhanger at the end of every episode so you get five cliffhangers in this case and then you get the final the final denouement the blowout at the end so roughly the material that goes into this uh hour and 24 minute long film is roughly not quite twice as long as the film it ended up being uh, featuring Peter Cushing. Yeah. And honestly, sometimes this film does feel a little uh, truncated. It's as if it's not necessarily rushed along, but as if we're brushing past things that might have, uh, that might actually be fun to spend some more time on. Right. I was surprised watching it again this week, how, how brisk it is. I, I knew it was short, and I knew it was shorter than the pre... I think it's shorter than the previous film, and I, I knew it was shorter than the actual television serial. But yeah. I'd kind of forgotten how how brisk it is, and it, it really does move along at a pretty good pace, even though there were at least a couple of comical scenes that, honestly, I don't think add anything to the film. And could have been it could have been another ten minutes shorter, maybe, and not harmed yeah. it at all. Yeah, and the things I would eliminate would have been the the comical bits, and we'll get to some some of my feelings about those additions soon enough. But before we get there, I did want to say that um, I had forgotten. Here's here's the thing: I had not uh, until just a few days ago rewatched this film in years. I hadn't either. 
And one of the things that surprised me coming back to it was that my memory was that uh, when I initially watched these movies, when I got them on DVD a decade ago or more, um, I remember thinking that the second film, this film, um, was a little better than the first one. For some reason, that was just my memory. Right. Oh, that was my memory. Huh? That was my memory, too. Yeah, well, I have to say, I don't think that's true anymore. I think I actually enjoy the first film more than this one now, because this one just seems a little, I don't know, it's a little tatty. There's um, the same show a little too much for me at times, and the comic relief really bugs me a good bit. But, I mean, I'm not saying I dislike the film. I'm just saying it was a bit of a come down because I actually sat down to watch this with the memory being, wow, I'm going to enjoy this one even more than the first one. And I didn't. So I did still. I still really? think this is a better film than the first one in, in pretty much every way. Um, you know, and that I. But well, it's that's like a shame. You, okay, folks, that's it. all for tonight. We're going to be signing <laughs> off now. <laughs> We can't have people liking the film on the show. What are you talking about? What are you, insane? <laughs> I'm one of those people, and, and you probably know this from listening to me on, on Vince's or Derek's podcast and stuff. It's like, if I don't like a film, I'm not going to come on a show and talk about it. Oh, no, There's of course just not. no reason to come on a show and tell people everything you don't like about a film. Uh, we're going to touch on things that we think could be better, for sure. Yeah. But overall, I think both of us enjoy this film and enjoy quite a lot. And I'd even recommend it for people that are kind of interested in the Daleks, if not Doctor Who. Yes. To check out as a, a good short primer on kind of a little bit of what a, what the Daleks are about and what doc, the Doctor Who universe is about, even though, as we'll probably talk about, it's not the Doctor Who. It's not the Doctor. It's no, it's not. Who, which, you know, that's a may seem like a fine distinction, to any of you that are not into Doctor Who, but it's it's a big <laughs> distinction for Doctor Who fans. Well, here's the thing. Here's another thing that actually I did not remember coming back to watch this film for the first time in so many years. I was unaware that um, we lost the the older girl, the older granddaughter, and gained that another too. one. Um, instead right. of uh, the we previous were, films, older, we lost Barbara. Yeah, we lost Barbara, and we picked up Louise, uh, played by Jill Curzon, who uh, had a pretty interesting career, I have to say, and she's, darn, she's cute. Uh, very cute. <laughs> she's a very attractive woman. Uh, we did retain Susan, the uh, young girl, played by uh, Robert, Roberta Tovey, and uh, she's quite good in this. this uh, as a matter of fact, I think she's great in both of these movies. Yeah, she's a very good child actress. Yeah, just yep. no doubt about that. That's, you know, it's funny you you run across movies all the time where the kids aren't very good in it. I mean, the the first Star Wars prequel being an obvious <laughs> reference there, but that is that is not an issue here. No, it's not, not an issue at all. She's a she's a fine young actress and does a terrific job, and it's. Kind of surprising in some ways. She not in more movies over was, the years. It was, it was fun reading was. Uh, some interviews with her, and of course she had some of the some very similar stories as do most of his co-stars about how wonderful a person Peter Cushing was. Which you know, big shock there, right? Right. I think we covered that last time, maybe. And, and, yeah. You know, yeah. N- nobody didn't like Peter Cushing. Everyone that you talk to about Peter Cushing says 
Peter Cushing was the best guy ever, pretty much. <laughs> pretty so. much. Um, and that's cool. That's great to hear. And then, you know, nowadays, yeah. where it's like, ah, oh, this guy is a good actor, but he was he treated treated men, women, or the stagehands badly and stuff. And you just never hear that about Peter Cushing or or Peter Cushing and Boris Karloff are the two people that I can think of in the genre cinema that we love so much. Nobody had anything bad to say about these people. It's true. Vincent Price, maybe too. I was just listening to Roger Corman sing the praises of working with Vincent Price and how how great that was too. So Vincent, probably, he might be the third one, but I don't think I've ever heard a bad story about him. So anyway, Um, should we tell people what this story is about before we start digressing further? Well, 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 one one thing, one more actor I want to make note of, which is... um, um, replacing the love interest from the previous film, uh, although he's not treated as a love interest in this film, is the actor uh, Bernard Cribbins, who plays uh, Constable Tom Campbell. And um, the most interesting thing about him for Who fans is that this is his first appearance in anything Doctor Who, but uh, in the more recent Doctor Who series, he actually uh, has a slightly reoccurring role as one of the companion's fathers. I mean, and he actually, in, at one point, actually be, technically travels in the TARDIS and becomes the Doctor's companion as well. And that's kind of the uh, the dividing line between whether you're a companion or whether you're not. It's whether you actually get into the TARDIS and go somewhere and do something with the Doctor. And he was Donna Noble's grandfather, yep. Wilfred Mott, in the TV series, and had a... A really wonderful recording part, uh, re- recurring part, and I think at least nine, nine or so episodes. Several back in the in the the early days of the reincarnated series. Mm-hmm. And, and he's great. He's yeah, he's, great. he's always great. He's one of those actors who uh, I when I, I had to be reminded that that was the guy from this film back several years ago, and I was just kind of scratching my head and going, "Oh my god, it really is!" But for Who fans, uh, he's also done a lot of uh, voice work in a bunch of uh, Doctor Who audio dramas as well that are done by the company Big Finish. So he's kind of had a connection to Doctor Who for a lot of years now. Which is very cool. He's um, he's listed somewhere as the only person in Doctor Who history to play two companions, two different companions. Yeah, with two different Doctor Who's, the real one and the fake one. <laughs> the real one and the, the, the kind of fake one, yeah. <laughs> so that, that kind of, that's an asterisk next to the asterisk <laughs> exactly. about this film and about Doctor Who. It's like, but, uh, you know, if they couldn't have picked a nicer guy to do that. And it was when I first found out that he was the same guy that had been in that, in this movie we're talking about today, 50 years pretty much before he reappears in Doctor Who, it was like, boom, mind blown. That's like finding out that there was one of the one of the characters in the later Doctor Who episodes, and I'm not going to remember his name right now, who appeared as a young version of himself and an old version of himself, a young Nixon era and then an old modern era guy. And the guy that played the modern era guy was actually the father of the guy that was playing the younger era guy, oh which is goodness. just like, yeah, that's like, Weird Doctor Who things that are really, really cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I keep waiting for them to decide to hire Sean Pertwee to come and play the Doctor so that he can be the first actual son of a Doctor to play the Doctor. 
Right. Or just to reprise his father's role. And I, I think I've heard that he's interested in doing that if they want to have him. And now's the time because he looks almost exactly like his dad. You put him in the wig and the costume and you completely buy it. So True. But not yet. They haven't done it yet. So... Invasion Earth 2150 AD. <sighs> Let's talk about the story. Let's go through a, a brief plot synopsis of this thing. Um, sure. Uh, the film starts in 1966 in London, where we meet policeman Tom Cop- Tom Campbell. I can't even talk. Uh, <laughs> where he comes upon uh, several men burgling a jewelry shop. Um, running to what appears to be a police box to call for backup, he enters TARDIS a time and space machine operated by its inventor, Dr. Who, along with his niece, Louise, and his granddaughter, Susan, as they are about to, to, to depart on a trip to the future. Now, um, once again, uh, I have to have it written out for me to be able to say uh, TARDIS instead of the TARDIS, but right. we'll, uh, we'll smooth on past that. Um I had forgotten how this film starts, and I and I think it's kind of neat that you've got this you know, this crime in progress as it begins, because it's kind of clever. This is not something from the uh, the original story. This is not from the TV show. This is right. something they concocted because they had to uh, introduce this character in a certain way, and they did a smart thing here. This is smart screenplay writing in a way because what we have here is the bookends and you don't know it's going to be a bookend until we get to the movie but this is kind of the uh the motor and the motivation for tom campbell and his desire to return to from whence he came to london at this time so he can thwart this robbery which i think is pretty pretty darn cool it's very cool and it's you know spoilers here i assume people are getting the spoiler warnings that this we're gonna spoil the heck out of this because it's 50 years old guys so just (laughs) don't complain just know that going in if you want to watch the show watch the show before you listen to this and if you need convincing maybe after you'll you'll decide you want to want to watch the show after listening to this but we're going to tell you what happens and we're going to tell you the end yep and the end right now is that the end returns to the beginning of the show and tom returns to foil the, the robbery he saw at the beginning, which I think is really cool. And one of the reasons is because it's an actual moment of time travel within this story. And Doctor Who, in theory, is a time travel series. But a lot of times that just involves going to a different place. It could be if the Earth were weird enough, it could be him just getting on a ship and going across the ocean to a different foreign land. 
And even though when he goes forward in time, they go to 2150 AD and they go to London and London's destroyed, in essence, it all could just be a different planet or a different country that we've never been to before. But the little bookend of this one is a time travel story about a cop who fails to foil a robbery, comes back in time, and through, you know, time travel mechanisms that probably wouldn't work, maybe, ends up being able to foil the robbery and be a hero, which is cool. I I liked it, and I, I, until it started, I'd forgotten about it, too. I was like, oh, yeah, this is a much better, much better beginning and ending than the first movie that we talked about. But here's the the thing, Um, and something I kind of wish they had done, and I, you know, as soon as they pop back up at the end to return to the beginning I wanted there to be two Toms and I wanted him to witness himself getting into the TARDIS or it just doesn't work right right well that is a common time travel story written by people that don't really understand time travel problem is that it's the end of you know more spoilers (laughs) it's the end of the original Superman film where he goes back he either winds back the earth or he goes back in time and to save Lois Lane, but when he gets back in time, for whatever reason, he doesn't actually have to save her, because the the thing that was imperiling her life is just stopped. And it's like, can't couldn't you just have him swoop in and pick up her car before she's crossed to death? Why did it just stop? And it just stopped because the movie makers thought that would be adequate, that would be enough, that there wouldn't be nerds like me that are saying (laughs) okay if you go back in time you still have to save her from the crack that's going to crush your car and the same thing happens here if you go back in time your original self still has to go through his routine before you can save the day at least to some extent so there you go we've got got the policeman uh, intervening in things and stepping into the TARDIS and realizing wow this is really big in here but uh, he faints, which is really kind of weird. Oh, well, he, he got whacked. Kinda, well, he got whacked. He got on the whacked head. and got blowed up and stuff like that. So it's not too strange that he, he got knocked out. We should mention, I think here, because we're talking about TARDIS, which is not the TARDIS because it's not the Doctor Who. It's Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> it's well, Peter we'll Kitching. get into that a little bit. But the TARDIS in this one, one of our main complaints about the previous film was the TARDIS looked crappy on the inside it looked like a junk professor's laboratory it was like they just thrown stuff together this one's got a little better interior although it's still got kind of a cheesy we've got black curtains hanging behind it backdrop effect in some places but at least the the panels and the stuff that's in the control room of TARDIS looks more convincingly like a control room someone had purposely put together rather than a whole bunch of stuff we had lying around the props house and a big lever that the hero can fall that the putative hero can fall against to set the plot in motion. But so, I will say, once this guy passes out, once this obvious constable passes out inside their time machine, they just still go ahead and travel through time. Right. <laughs> this is <laughs> let, let's be clear here, Steve. This is a kidnapping. Yes. <laughs> A kidnapping into a, a perilous and uncertain future, for that matter. Yes, yes. This is this is a kidnapping, and I'm waiting for Liam Neeson to show up, and, and it's taken four 
2150 AD. That's what this is. I have a set of special skills. (laughs) No matter where you go. (laughs) When you go. Now now I want to see Liam Neeson taking down Daleks. That's just exactly what I want to see. We can have Liam Neeson as Doctor Who. Sure, I'm for it. That works for me. Um... (laughs) Well, they arrive in London in the year 2150, uh, and they find uh, that it is a ruin, man. It's a it's a desolate landscape of just ruined buildings, and the whole the whole city looks like it's been kind of ragged to the ground, and and it's uh, pretty pretty horrible. It's you know if you think about it, that's a little under 200 years in the future from when they they left, and. That's got to be devastating, but the best thing about it is that there are still really readable signs advertising sugar pops or sugar puffs. <laughs> yes, yeah, and the, in the, one of the earliest examples of product, product placement, placement, one of the ways we got funding for this film was through sugar pops or sugar smacks? sugar puffs, sugar puffs, sugar puffs, which is basically what in the U.S. we would call. Sugar smacks. Yeah. I think now, and then they were honey smacks for now. Now are they just smacks? You know, I don't know anymore. I've I've, I've lost the thread on cereal characters. Right. Yeah. Cereal characters and sugar cereals somehow as an adult, I'm not paying as much attention to that as I used to. And I don't think they allow them to advertise anything as being sugar anything anymore. <laughs> it's probably a bad idea. Sugar puffs, sugar smacks, sugar pops. We had all sorts of things with sugar in the title when I was a kid. Then, in the health food craze of the 70s, they went to honey, and then they completely <coughs> removed any reference to sweetness at all after that. But this, we're still on the sugar face. And, uh, you know, that's all for the good to my mind. At least you know what you're getting. Um, but here, it looks when we get to this ruined future, it turns out that the Daleks, who, of course, Doctor Who encountered in the previous film, but on their own planet... By 200 years in the future, they have invaded Earth and have ravaged the entire planet. Not just London. Everybody. Yep, but apparently they've, they've messed the whole deal up. Yep. Although, it seems like all of the after doing that, all of the Daleks are now concentrated in London. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, they have a job to do, and apparently... Uh, somewhere uh, not too far from London is the perfect place to drill down to the core of the Earth. I am pretty sure that would actually be a spot somewhere in South America, but hey, that's just me being technical and kind of looking things up geologically. Ignore me. Ignore me. (laughs) Well, and if you want to get to the journey at the center of the Earth, we all know you have to go to Skataris in Iceland the same way Professor Lindenberg and company did, right? (laughs) And Travis Morgan. Right. Yes, people, that is a reference to the comic book character, The Warlord, created by Mike Grell. This has been your most recent digression. Now, <laughs> well, I could talk a little bit about Mike Grell and what a great guy he is, but we're not going to we're not going to digress anymore. No, such no a, more. Such digress. a fan, such a fan of Mike Grell. Oh, stop, stop, stop. Okay. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, he Mike Grell stole the idea from Edgar Rice Burroughs. Anyway, yeah. but but it's still a great comic book. <laughs> yes, it is. And, and the Daleks haven't read it, but they are still drilling to the center of the Earth. But that takes a while to, to, for us to find that oh, yeah, out. We'll, we'll get to that plan in a little while, which, you know, it, I almost you almost have to piece together their plan by, like, backing the film up and listening to dialogue a second time. Because it's like, what the hell are they doing? Anyway, 
Um, well, they've got a lot going on here, and remember, they're they're fitting a two and a half hour plot yes. into an hour and twenty four minutes. Well, so. now, see, here's the thing. Um, now, this is a digression that we need to take because it actually relates to the film. Um, one of the things that I think causes some of the problems that I have with this film revolve around the fact that uh, Peter Cushing got ill during the making of it. And so they had to do some fast rewrites on a few scenes to kind of write the Doctor Who character out of several sequences of the movie. And I think that... What, that, happened? what happened to him? Oh, he got sounded, sick. Oh, it sounded to me like you said he got killed. Oh, good lord! <laughs> I was no. Like what? <laughs> no, no. He didn't die until so he was ill. He, he, was he, he was ill. He he was he wasn't you know deathly ill, but he was ill enough that they actually had to stop production for a couple of days, and then um, they had to write him out of a few sequences just to be able to keep production moving. Mm. So. And it and it did delay the movie a little bit, and uh, did cause the movie to go a little bit over budget. But because of that, there are some see there's some I think some sequences in the movie that might have gone over a little smoother with the star power of Peter Cushing kind of pushing the dialogue along or or kind of being there to kind of be that solid center that he so often is, and therefore there's some kind of awkward little bits and pieces here and there, and I think. The way that um, the the Daleks' plan is kind of rushed through in a little ways, and the Resistance people's plans are kind of rushed through a little bit as well, kind of points to where that flaw kind of crops up. That's just part of the production when you have your your main lead actor get a little ill and not be able to be there for part of production. And that's that's kind of an interesting footnote too, because the the weird thing is that on the far end of that there are sequences in the film where the Doctor Who, where Peter Cushing is acting as the lead, that in the original teleplay were actually sequences other characters were doing. Yeah. And that includes the some of the final climax of the film. So it's like, okay, we wrote him out of here, but we wrote him into here, and now he's sick, and so we... It's, it's kind of one of those filmmaking's weird, friends. <laughs> Strange things happen. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to work with what you got, and it doesn't always. Uh, sometimes you can paper over it very effectively, and sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's kind of. And I obvious. thought they did honestly. You know, this is a, this is one of those storylines like the Lord of the Rings, where you have all the characters together, and something happens, and suddenly they're all going in different directions for a while, and then eventually they all come back together toward the end of the story. And it was that way in in the serial. You know, it was. Uh, one of these serials where the characters do break apart and suddenly you're following in the, in the original, you're following Ian and Barbara or you're following Susan and the people she's with and you're not following the doctor. And so in that sense, this movie follows that, that plot, but it can lead to a somewhat weaker through line on the story. Yeah. Sometimes. Well, in the film we have, um, after, you know, the Daleks have ravaged the planet, but, um, some of the survivors have formed a resistance movement, while the, the captured people have either been turned into brainwashed slaves called Robomen, or they're taken to provide forced labor at uh, various Dalek mining complexes. And the biggest one, the one that we're really concerned with here in the story, is in Bedfordshire. And that's where the, uh, the Dalek master plan 
the reason they're actually on Earth and doing what they're doing uh, comes to the fore. Now, right. let's discuss Roboman. Um, brainwashed slaves. This is um, it's an interesting thing, and I didn't look this up, but I, since this was, I think, the second story in the second year of Doctor Who or something like that, again, very early in the series, it's well before we had the Cybermen, which are roboticized yeah, yeah. people and one of the main Doctor Who villains nowadays. But these are Robo-Men, which is essentially the same things, but instead of having, you know, lots of cool powers and metal suits, they just have helmets where they've, <laughs> they've been brainwashed and lobotomized or whatever they've done to them. It's bad for sure because they're, they're not human anymore and they can't fix them. As we find out, and well, in the serial, well, you can't, in the serial you can't fix them. But in the movie, it turns out near the end, once the the Daleks are all blown to smithereens, spoilers, um, they seem to be they seem to have their own will again because they're like running away from everything. Oh, you could be right. You could be right about that. I hadn't really thought about that because the we do have a big action finish in this movie, yep. a much bigger action finish than in the previous film. There's a lot more characters, a lot more stuff going on. So I think that's yeah, where the you, budget you, went. I think you're right. The, it, the interesting thing is the, the original serial is actually much darker than this movie, which is aimed at children. This film was aimed at children, and it's it has its dark moments. Well, but yeah, the serial but the starts... the TV show was aimed at kids, too, primarily. The, the TV show starts with a robo-man killing himself by walking into the water and drowning himself. Really? That's the first scene in the show. Holy and crap. in behind him on the the bridge wall, rather than sugar puffs, there's a sign that says, "Dumping of bodies in the river is illegal." <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa! As as if you know, this is a common enough occurrence that you need to put a big big poster up that says that. And the TARDIS appears right into that setting after this guy has killed himself at wow. the start of the show, and the Robomen suffer bad fates in in the original serial various grisly bad fates but starting <laughs> off with a suicide that's just not something you do in a kids movie <laughs> yeah yeah i mean well we do have uh the doctor and um tom uh run across a dead robo man in that warehouse right after right. they get there. So maybe that's kind of their nod to this suicide because we never get an explanation for why this guy's dead. Oh, they had that in the other one too. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, yeah, that guy was, he was killed by one of the resistance fighters. And there's, there is a mention of that in the film. I noticed when I went back and rewatched okay. a little bit of it the other day. So, okay. so they do kind of, they wrap it up, but Oh, that's yeah, right. So right. we know because... that bad things happen to robo men. It's just not quite as grim. As it might be, <laughs> it's not as. For some reason, the film version is less grim than the television version. Yeah. Welcome to Great Britain. There are a lot more people that die in the in the television people in the television version. A lot more that die. So, <laughs> but then they had more time to fill, right? So you yeah. have to have more characters. So you have to kill more of them off, right? It's like so a that, slasher that's... film. Big cast, <laughs> lots of deaths. And there you go. Okay, so, well, um, Doctor Who and Tom become separated from Louise and Susan, and um, 
they are captured. Doctor Who and Tom, the, the, the constable, are captured by a squad of Robo-Men and imprisoned on a Dalek spaceship. Doctor Who manages to uh, release their cell's lock with a comb, unaware that the Daleks use escape attempts to test their captives' suitability for robotization. Um, yeah, I'd have stayed in the cell if I knew that, probably. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so would, so would the other guy. There's a third guy with them. Yeah. And they're, they all escape, and they're all taken to be roboticized. And the third guy, the third guy actually doesn't escape that process. He ends up being a robot. Yes, he does. Well, at the same time, one of the resistance people by the name of Weiler, uh, who's played by one of my favorite actors from this period, uh, Anthony uh, Anthony Kier, um, who was my favorite uh, Quatermass from Quatermass in the Pit, the Hammer version. Andrew Kier. I'm sorry, Andrew Kier. And I can't get his name right. And he is my fa- favorite Quatermass too. He's yeah, he's fantastic as Quatermass, and he he tends to be good in anything he he shows up in. He, oh yeah, uh, he he was also great as uh, as a vampire slayer in Dracula, Prince of Darkness for Hammer. Too. Right, the uh, the Father Shandor. Yep, yep. All right, who later kind of had a comic book made about him. So that's one of my favorite. One of my favorite vampire slayers of all time. That char- that character is a great character. Wait a minute, what's and this Andrew comic Pierce. book you're talking about? There's a Father Shandor witch hunter or something like that that the to the 2000 AD people did. I think really. It's yeah, they spell it slightly different. And I was I was uh, if we got on uh, the internet quickly enough, we could see how the it's Sandor in the film S A N D O R. Right. And in the comics, it's Shandor, S H A M D O R. So, but it's it's clearly the same character. At least my memory of it is that I haven't read those stories for probably thirty years or more. That's but it's cool. clearly the same character, or closely inspired <laughs> by the same character. And I don't think there were a lot of a lot of comics with him. And it it may have even been in Warrior, which was the comic anthology that Alan Moore first did his groundbreaking Miracle Man than Marvel Man in. It may yeah. have been in that, or it may have been in just a one of the regular 2000 AD series. That, I'm sure that someone will write in and let us know. Yeah. but so, uh, You can, you can I, find I, some of them online. I do love Andrew Keir. I think he's just a great actor. And in this... Yep. Um, he plays Weiler, who's a member of the Resistance. He takes Louise and Susan to a Resistance base uh, in the London Underground, where they meet uh, a bunch of other rebels, uh, including uh, the rather handsome David and the wheelchair-bound Dortman. Now, Dortman, man, he's gung-ho. For a guy in a wheelchair, he is uh, he's aching to kill some Daleks. Uh, yep. He suggests disguising some of the rebels as Robo-Men to get onto the Dalek spaceship and uses these bombs they've been creating to attack the thing from the inside and take them down, which seems like a good plan. Yep, it does. And in the in the television show, if my memory serves, it's actually the Barbara who suggests that. Barbara comes up with a lot of the good plans in the TV show. Barbara is one of the two traveling companions of Doctor Who, otherwise known as the Doctor. Yep. Uh, and does not appear in this film. She was in the first film, but had morphed into his a, a second granddaughter, I think, if memory serves. No, no, she's a niece in this. Right, yeah, but it's it's that she's a niece character in this, but it's, she's not even called Barbara anymore. No, in this she's one. the niece the, Louise in this. 
Right. In the first one, she was Barbara, but a completely different actress. Yep. And and a completely different character in the sense that Barbara, Barbara and Ian in the original show were the two of the Doctor's first companions, and they were school teachers that came to find out why his granddaughter was such a weird kid. <laughs> and they end up getting swept into adventures with the doctor and his granddaughter. So in the, the, for whatever reason, they kept the character, but completely changed their background and their names and, and the way they looked between films one and films two. So the Barbara part is being now filled by Sylvia, but she's not the one that comes up with a plan for how to get no, to the it's, Daleks. It's Louise. The character's name is Louise. I'm sorry, Louise. My, my bad. That's all right. It was like, she didn't have a lot of dialogue, honestly. She's kind of she, more of a... I think she's a, there to be a pretty woman. She is. I mean, she does is, that quite well. And, and she's a gorgeous woman. And, you know, if you look for look up pictures of her, you're going to find a lot of her in swimsuits with Daleks. Yes, I um, noticed that. Right. And, and very little else. So it's yes. clear why why they cast her but for those of you that care about such things that is not the the role that these characters fulfilled on the original series the women of doctor who were generally not cast because they were bombshells and no, not, not to there say were that a that's lot all of them that were though <laughs> a lot of them were very attractive women yes you know but but few of them were cast solely because solely of that. for that so, no and certainly the the, the most popular Sarah Jane Smith, played by Elizabeth Slayton, is she's almost an anti-bombshell and all the more attractive because of that. She's almost everyone's favorite companion. So, <laughs> but we digress again. <laughs> well, listen, you knew we're gonna, all, right? Guys? Yeah, 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 I knew it. Everybody knows it. That's what they expect. Come on. Anyway, so they go to attack the the spaceship, which is kind of a flying saucer thing, and a pretty good special effect, I have to say. The, the the spacecraft is a great special effect. Now, if you if you watch films for as long as we have, you're you're able to spot where the matte painting begins and ends, and you're probably going to be able to easily spot the wires when the spacecraft is in flight. But it's still a really great model, and they do some really great stuff with matching miniatures and matte paintings to uh, the the on-site sets, and it really looks cool the entire time. They match it well. Right, yeah, they do, and and credit to the folks that did that, and that's one of the places where the the film stands just head and shoulders above the original TV production, which is not not really surprising that it would, because it had an actual budget, whereas the TV show was always (laughs) skating on the edge of having no money at all and had to make do with, oh, good stories. (laughs) True. (laughs) Which is, you know, one one thing that people should learn is that stories don't, Stories, writers are cheap. Writers don't cost that much. If you're going to spend money anywhere in a film or television production, spend it on the writers. You're going to get a better product. So This message brought to you by a writer. A writer. (laughs) (laughs) What a shock. What a shock. (laughs) Anyway, the the special effects are good. Oh, yeah, they are. They're, you know, they're mid-60s good. They're kind of, you know, James Bond- Kind of, I don't think Derek Metting's worked on this, but it, they're kind of a little bit below that level. But they are kind of in the same ballpark as, you know, the the work that was done in the Spy Who Loved Me and that kind of stuff later in the seventies. They're 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 good. They're they're more than passable and way better than the television show. 
True. Well, after this attack fails, um, although they do uh, they do off one of the Daleks and a, a number of Robomen get killed, um, the problem is that um, pretty much all of the Resistance people who attack the ship end up dead as well. We end up with Doctor Who getting separated from Tom, and Doctor Who is now with... Uh, he's with... Uh, darn it, he's with David... The, the good-looking resistance guy who survives. And uh, Weiler, who's uh, Andrew Keir, he ends up with uh, Susan and another fella. They return to the base where Dortmund, the guy in the wheelchair, tells them that uh, he saw the doctor escape. Uh, they decide to go to the outskirts of London and hide until the rebels can regroup. Susan leaves a written message about their intentions for the doctor so that when they depart, they hope that he'll make it back to this place and read the message and know where they're going. Which all seems to make perfect sense. Except <laughs> when the doctor and David get back to the place, they never even spot this message, which I thought even was Even though it's, it's really written neat. in huge chalk letters on a, a seemingly blank wall. Blank wall. Yeah. And you watch them through the entire scene where they're going, well, where could they go? Well, they could go here. They could go here. Oh, I think they'll go up to the mine, they decide. Well, Completely missing. They d- the message that says we're not going to the mine, we're going here. But then they end up. Well, what I love is that this is where the some of the seams show from what you can do in a six-part television show, which is have these characters start in one direction, realize that that's a bad idea, and then divert to another direction. Whereas in a feature film, what you would generally do is you just head to the end point that you know you're going to end up in because you right. have a limited Cut amount out of time. Cut out the middle point because you really don't have time to waste here. But in this, but the, they kind of try to do both. They right. kind of have to, they try to cram it in there. And so what you have is kind of interesting. And I kind of like this aspect of it because it's, it is so different from what you would do in a feature film story, which is you, for a few minutes, have the audience thinking, well, crap, they're never going to meet up with these people, even though you know the movie's 90 minutes long, they're going to meet. Come on. But the right. idea is that. They get to a certain point, they realize, okay, well, we can't go where we thought they were going to be because there's just right. way too many Daleks. So let's go here because this is logically the next place they would go. And and the and that as a kid in that scene, you're probably yelling at the the characters to turn around and see the writing on the wall that says, "Grandfather, we're going to Grafton or wherever it is." Literally, and the not writing to on the, the wall. Mine. And. And it's kind of got a good payoff too. I kind of like at the end of the scene, they they leave, they go through a sliding door, and as they get to the other side of the sliding door, you realize that the message was written on the back side of the door that slides up into the ceiling, and they never saw it when they were coming in, and they never saw it when they were going out because when the door was open, it was it was gone, it was invisible. It's a pretty cool thing, but like I say, it is an obvious leftover from truncating a much longer story down to a shorter length. Right. Yeah. Because in the in the serial, they actually spend time in other places, and there's even an entirely new monster that's in the middle part where they're trying to get here, and they end up end up there, and suddenly they're facing a mutated monster that's been caused by the by the the Dalek War and all the, the junk that the Daleks have put in the the atmosphere and stuff and all that's gone because yeah. here just the idea that the, in theory the idea was they were good they started in london they're going to go to a second place and then they're going to go to the mine the doctor ends up jumping right to go to the mine 
And then a little later, as he works on the synopsis here, you're going to find out that Susan doesn't end up going to that middle place either. Nope. So, and that that's fine. You know, it's uh, that's kind of a good diversion. And again, we're keeping the characters separate. So at this point, we have two sets of people that are on foot or in car going to two different destinations, and we've got the the other set of people, which is uh, the Ian and Barbara characters, which is actually Tom and I'm going to forget her name again, Louise. Louise, yeah. Who are in the flying saucer and going with wherever the Daleks are going, they're going. Well, the uh, the Dortmund character they they commandeer a van to to hightail it out of London. Uh, that is uh, the Weiler character, the Andrew Keir character, and um, I just blank Susan. Susan. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Susan, anyway. Susan's the only character that's actually consistent through that, this whole thing. This is true. <laughs> and uh, so, so they come to this man, Dortmund, the, the same guy name in the... purpose as in the original story. Yeah. Uh, Dortmund, the guy in the wheelchair, is killed when they encounter a Dalek patrol, and uh, he kind of, uh, uh, he suicides by Dalek, I think. That's pretty much what it boils down to. He falls on his sword to save the others. Yep. Uh, but he so... also, he's also the guy that invented the the bombs that he was sure were going to kill the Daleks that and then ended up getting all the other rebels killed because the bombs didn't kill the Daleks. The only Dalek that dies is one that gets pushed down a ramp and blows up. Which is, once again, a really cool effect. It is, and the... I don't know if you listened to any of the, the extra oh, stuff yeah. on the Dalek Mania. The, when that Dalek fell down that ramp and blew up, it didn't go quite as planned, so the actor that was in the Dalek suit costume prop whatever you want to call it it actually caught fire yeah at the bottom of the ramp and all the cast and crew had to run down and pull this guy out and he wasn't hurt but it was one of those crazy well that was that special effect went much more realistically than we had intended moments well i mean there were a couple of things like that in this film early on we didn't we didn't talk about it because it's a very small moment uh overall but uh when they uh, when they're initially captured by the daleks uh, there's some humans that are being captured at the same time. One of them is played by uh, legendary stuntman Eddie Powell. And um, even if you didn't know that he was kind of a legendary stuntman, the fact that uh, even though he has dialogue in the movie, uh, he does this amazing stunt and it's all in one shot. And therefore it has to be a guy who's a stuntman where he he's chased, uh, they're shooting at him and he's chased up along this kind of crumbling wall. And then he's, uh, the wall is shot, and he's narrow beams, yeah. and he falls, uh, hits this awning, and then out, lands on a pile of bricks, yeah, and then the, the Daleks surround him and, and a, kill him. In a continuous shot, he's on top of this mm-hmm. beam that's two, maybe three stories tall. The beam breaks. He falls through the air, hits an awning, rips through it, and lands on a pile of bricks, and then kind of almost walks away from the pile of bricks into a bunch of Daleks who kill him. Right, and he broke his ankle doing that stunt because the effect, the the shot that uh, breaks away part of the wall that causes him to fall into the awning uh, came a little too soon, and so he hit the awning with his foot instead of with his kind of his knees, and uh, he broke his ankle doing that stunt. And still finished the shot, which is kind of amazing. He yeah. manages, you can see that he's hurt as he kind of, half crawls, half walks, half limps away from the, the end of that shot, which is all done in one master shot. There are no cuts. Nope. And, and the Daleks come in and blast him, and you got to think, okay, 
this here's a stuntman who just broke his ankle on this shot and still got up and walked toward the camera so the bad guys could kill him. Well, he kind of slid Bravo. slash kind of fell toward the camera. Right. It's, it's, it's once you know what's going on, it's a little painful to watch. But if you he don't is. know, it, it looks very natural because it's, it's essentially what was really happening. Yep. Now, if you aren't aware of who Eddie Powell was, uh, pretty much any time you see Christopher Lee in a movie in the 60s or 70s um, and there's some kind of stunt work involved, that was Eddie Powell. Right. And if you take a good look at him in this film when he's delivering his lines, you can see how they could kind of get away with that because uh, they, he and Christopher Lee kind of have a very similar profile. Right. They have a very similar frame and certainly from the, from the back of their heads. Definitely, you put them in the same costume, they'd be hard to tell apart. Yeah, yeah, they got away with a lot with Eddie Powell. He was, uh, they, he was a legend, man. He was. But you couldn't get through to London, huh? You, you, you'll be safe here. Attention, attention, survivors of London, the Daleks are the masters of Earth. The Daleks. Surrender now, and you will live, resist, and you will be exterminated. Show yourself in the street immediately, and obey the orders of your masters, the Daleks. Obey motorized dustbins? Well, you'll see about that. Good. Keep that gun well oiled. We'll show them who the masters are. And we'll show them. Before we get away from this section of the film, um, before we talk about the fact that uh, Constable Tom and Louise uh, hide out on the spacecraft, uh, the Dalek spacecraft, and then are able to escape, uh, it's on the Dalek spacecraft um, after... Tom escapes being robotized and the doctor, he and he, and he gets separated that we run into the stuff that I would really rather not be in the movie, which is the, uh, the comedy bits. Um, there are two of them in specific that I find, uh, just irritating and they take me out of the movie very, very badly. Uh, actually there's one little one right at the beginning of the film which is done by a different actor, not by Bernard Cribbins, the fellow who's playing Tom Campbell, but by uh, another actor. Once the uh, TARDIS goes off into 2150 uh, and disappears there on the London street, there's another actor standing there who has just started to bang on the door, and he does this take directly to the camera where he's going, ooh, and I hate... Because the TARDIS, he, he knocks on the door turns to talk to someone because the TARDIS is disguised as a police box. So in theory, you could get help for a crime by getting someone out of the police box or using the phone in the police box. He knocks on the TARDIS, turns and talks to someone. And when he turns back, it's gone through the magic of special effects, Right. which all of that was fine with me. But then he gives us a straight look into the camera, breaks the fourth wall. Yeah. <laughs> and gives and I, us a reaction. I hate that that immediately irritates me and i'm like okay if that's the only thing like this in the movie i'll let it fly i'll wish it wasn't there but i'll go on it's a bad choice and it's a choice probably made because it's a children's film 
And I think that the next stuff we're going to talk about here, I think this is also kitty film stuff. It is, it is. inserted to lighten it up because we just had the, the comedy bits we're about to talk about happen pretty much immediately after all of the resistance fighters are killed by the Daleks, save our heroes. And it's like they're trying to lighten things up a bit. Yep. But what we have so. is Bernard Cribbins, who's, who's, who was known as a comedic actor at the time, and who, you know, honestly, he acquits himself just fine committing these comedic acts, for lack of a better right. term. No, he's um, very funny. Yeah, and the thing is, it just doesn't fit in the story. It doesn't fit in this. It doesn't fit in this movie. And one of them is when he's trying to uh, uh, pretend that he's one of the Robo Men, so he uh, you know, st- uh, stays in formation with them and then uh, eats a meal with them. Right, and he's trying. always just a little bit out of sync with the right. rest. And, and it's, it's supposed to be funny. It's, it's and if you're a little kid in the 1960s. It probably is pretty funny. You know, in their defense, for kids, that scene is probably just fine. And probably maybe got the kids' attention back after this kind of grim fighting scene where a lot of people are killed. And I'm sure they put it in this like, okay, we need a lighter moment. Because otherwise, this is, again, based on the serial, this is a very grim Doctor Who storyline. <laughs> <laughs> right up right up to the end of the serial. It's it's edgy and it's dark and it's, a lot of people get killed and a lot of things you don't expect are going to happen happen. So in the movie we're looking to lighten it up. It's a G-rated movie or whatever the British equivalent was yeah. for the time. So we just had this mass slaughter. Mm, let's lighten up the mood a little and so have. We go, so we go through that and then Tom manages to uh, meet up with Louisa on the ship. They realize that they're trapped there right now because the the ship is actually in flight. They have no way to get off of it. And uh, they accidentally activate the uh, food processing machine. And we have a little bit of I Love Lucy. Right. That's when you and I were originally discussing it. I said we have the the Lucille Ball scene, which is Lucy in the Chocolate Factory and the the uh, the conveyor belt goes out of out of control, and suddenly she has to eat all the chocolate faster than it comes off the the conveyor belt. So we have. So here's the thing: literally, though, the whole point that is kind scene. of a scene with food in this, which serves the whole point no of the purpose. scene is to demonstrate where uh, how they're going to escape. We right. it shows us where the disposal chute is, so that when the craft lands, they use the disposal chute and actually get off the ship. But man, right. I wish they'd come up with a better way to get that across right. to us. Like you know, like trying to get rid of, you know, some bit of uh, incriminating evidence or just getting rid of clothing or something. Thinking about it in the serial, which I, I will admit I was working on other things while I had this on the background, so I I wasn't paying full attention to it when I rewatched it. My memory is though that they use that shoot to get rid of a Robo Man they've killed. <laughs> <laughs> I could be wrong, really, but. See, that's, yeah, I think that, that's what happens. That would be um, better. Oh, it, it was. It, it was, is, would be. But it again, we're in the the comic aftermath of the slaughter here for the kids' <laughs> film. And so we get a funny scene that demonstrates the, the you know, the dumpster ability of the of the trash shoot. Yeah. You know, and, and if you can watch this 
nowadays and not think of the garbage masher in Star Wars. You know, well, you're better person than we are. So <laughs> into <laughs> well, the garbage is, masher, flyboy. It is those um, it is those comedic scenes and the fact that they take place on the the Dalek ship that honestly just undercuts the tension and and danger of being trapped on this ship it it's not a good idea to have done it <laughs> well but i'm i'm almost entirely sure that's why they did it because i, I think they were the they were worried that the kids were going to freak out and you didn't want to have kids freaking out they might have even been worried that if the tension got too high they wouldn't get whatever all ages rating they were shooting for in England. so yeah, instead so. of going grim you go comedic accomplish some of the same stuff but but you're right as as an adult film viewer those those two scenes that just it's like they're from a completely different movie it's honestly it's like they're from the ian character in the first movie who's a klutz and always getting into trouble because he's a klutz which again is a choice they made for the movies that is completely opposite for the from the choices they made for the companion characters in the series which was you know people talk about doctor who because of the cheapness of a lot of its stuff but the people doing it were treating it as pretty serious science fiction and that's one of the reasons people like us still really love it today 50 years later exactly exactly mm, you're right We'll have to bypass Watford. The place is full of Daleks. Well, here we go. On up to Bedfordshire. We must find out what they're up to. How far we got to go now? About three miles. Halt! This I was saying, about three miles. Well, okay, so at this point we have Susan and Tom getting off the ship through the waste chute after the the spacecraft lands. Uh, Where it's landed is at this mining complex. Uh, There, they're attacked by a roboman, but saved by one of the slave workers, one of the human slave workers, who uh, takes takes the two of them and hides them in a tool shed. Which means we have a setup for a great joke, but I'm not going to tell it. So... (laughs) It's not a farmer's daughter joke, but it's pretty close. Anyway, it's a tool shed joke. Yeah, <laughs> we we have some idea where you're going. You don't yeah, even yeah, have to say yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just, just run, run run this one around your own mind, and you'll get the idea. So, Weiler and Susan uh, shelter in a in a college in a, in a in a cottage that's occupied by a woman and her mother. Susan convinces Weiler that uh, Doctor Who would avoid the Daleks they've seen in the Watford area, and head for the Bedfordshire mine instead. So, in other words, this is how we get past the fact that we're cramming a whole lot of extra story into this that didn't really need to be in a feature-length story. Right. This is how we bring the characters back together while skipping any detours through the middle of the story, which right. you need in a six-part serial. You can't always go directly to the end of the story. Well, the daughter who lives in the college leaves on an errand, but it's pretty clear from the way she's acting that uh, this is not going to work out well. And when she returns, she comes back with Daleks who capture Weiler and Susan and take them to the Mind Control Center. It's not looking good, people. Nope. Nope. Bad guys now have the good guys. 
some of the good guys. The other good guys are being led astray by a, a skeezy character who we haven't even mentioned yet. Oh yeah, and well, the third well, ones are trapped a... in the Dalek spaceship. Well, near the mine, we have Doctor Doctor Who and David are confronted by Broccoli, who's a black marketeer, who's quite a natty dresser. Uh, I like I like <laughs> that overcoat. That's pretty cool. That's a trench coat. Well, you know when you dress that well in a dystopian future, you're an ass. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, this guy is clearly an asshole and a jerk and somebody who needs to be watched out for. And he proves himself to be quite the jerk right off the bat. Um, he agrees to smuggle him into the complex, and uh, he leads them to the very tool shed where Tom and Louise are hiding. Ain't that a coinky dink? Although it's it's less of one, because in theory he's hooked up with the guy that just sheltered the two of them. This is true. Some kind of a a favored slave, kind of a leader of the slaves. So it's not a crazy coincidence, but it's so, a coincidence for sure. True. Well, now though we have uh, uh, two of the three separate groups reunited, uh, and they're joined by uh, one of the prisoners, Conway. He reveals that the Daleks are about to drop a bomb into their mine shaft, the one that they're digging, with the plan to destroy the Earth's core. This will then be replaced with a device that enables the aliens to pilot the planet like a giant spacecraft. Now, pause for That's a second, no folks. That's no moon. It's yeah, exactly. Pause station. for a second, folks. Before we get into, my God, it's a Death Star, let's get into the question of, huh? <laughs> because, I swear to you, the way it's described is not destroy the Earth's core, but push the Earth's core out of the planet. And to my mind, that just means you've destroyed a perfectly good planet. In in the, again, you know, I wasn't watching really, really carefully, but in the, the television version, they seemed, my memory is that they implied that they were somehow using the Earth's core as propulsion to move the planet. I could be wrong about that. It's, it's a wacky idea. Yep. And if you've ever seen Gorath, the Japanese film in which they have to move the earth, you know just how wacky that idea is. <laughs> but as a kid's science fiction show, the idea of, you know, screwing up the planet's ecosystem to move it out of orbit and stuff, that's not so crazy. I mean, we had Space 1999 after all just a few years later, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, here's the thing, though. I mean, the moon in Space 1999, I can't believe I'm about to defend Space 1999. God save <laughs> but me. You but are, I am, you are. I am. I'm about to. Yes. Hang on, people. Put on your seatbelts. <laughs> when the moon is blown out of, the or- out of orbit, we never see what this has done to the Earth itself because it would be right. pretty devastating. Oh, yeah. It'd be bad. It'd be very bad. Very bad. And so... While the moon remains intact, and that takes a little explanation, which they kind of try to do in that pilot episode, the idea of the moon just flying off into space, I can I can buy that easier than let's punch the core out of the planet <laughs> and replace it with a machine. Now, I like the idea that you seem to be indicating is part of the TV series, which is, no, 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 they're going to bore down to the Earth's core and use the core as a, as a power source. As that. an explosive propulsant, I think, kind of like a rocket in some sense, which is crazy still. But Still crazy, but I can buy that more than I can. Let's just punch it right out of the side of the planet. 
<laughs> which, which I don't, I don't see how you do that and not just, you know, destroy the entire ball. The right, sphere well, the, is over. Hijacking the planet is just such a cool science fiction idea that I'm kind of willing to, I'm kind of willing to go with that. I'm kind of willing to, you know, because clearly, because they're Daleks. They, it's the planet they want, right? They don't care if they're going to wipe out all human life on the planet. Oh, yeah. They've already tried to yeah. do that, right? No problem so with that idea. That's 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 perfectly cool. I like that idea. It's just I keep no matter how I picture it, I don't see it working. So, <laughs> well, and if you've seen Gorath, have you seen Gorath? Actually, I hate to admit it. No, I have not. It's well, it's really hard to see in in a decent cut. Although it might be on Amazon streaming now. The the idea is that the there's a, a rogue planet going to come and smash into the Earth, and the scientists of Earth decide they're going to move the planet, so they put giant rockets on Antarctica, I think it is, and literally push the planet from one of the poles into a slightly different orbit so that the Earth isn't destroyed. You have single-handedly pushed that film to the top of my must-see list. Right. <laughs> I wish it had a better print because I've only seen really crappy prints of it, and it's and it's you know it's a Toho film, so it's got you know the usual Toho cast and crew and special effects guys working on it. It's a Subaraya special effects, I think. So you want to see a good print of it, but I I've, can't wait. I'm going right. <laughs> to see this movie so soon. They've they've showed it on Comet a couple of times, but again, it's not the best print. So, you know, anyway, I'll, I'll look around. Are, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what I find. The parallels between that and, and this. And the Death Star. No, wait. And and the Death Star or the whatever they call the one that was in the uh, Star Wars 7. Uh, Star <laughs> Killer. They're, they're, the Star Killer. There clearly some relationship there. <laughs> but as I recall, the Daleks might have tried to steal planets and there are other planet-stealing characters and in the Doctor Who television series. So it's not, oh, not yeah. this may be the first time though, that anyone said, okay, we're going to take the earth. We're going to take it. We're going to move it because it's <laughs> such a cool planet. Right. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is, um, was moved in one of the David Tennant episodes. I think hmm. somebody to maybe the Daleks took the planet and moved it. Anyway, that's well, their plan. Anyway, the, it's the, a crazy uh, plan. But it's the best one they've <laughs> Well, and it's countered by an even crazier plan of Doctor Who's, which is, um, oh man. So if they're going to drop a bomb into a mine shaft to destroy the Earth's core, um, what Doctor Who comes up with, with a really convenient map of the planet <laughs> Earth. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm amused. Um, when you look at that map, it's like, this was not a film prop. No, not at all. <laughs> Realizing that an explosion, well, their their plans of the mine. They show an old shaft that kind of leads, uh, leads to a convergence between the planet's magnetic poles. Let me say that again to you, because if you think that sounds kooky <laughs> or just completely batshit, you are correct. Um, right? Yeah. The it's plans like, of the okay. mine show an old shaft leading to a convergence between the planet's magnetic poles. Which we assume is north and south, which usually the convergence between the magnetic poles would be the center of the Earth, one would think. I would think. I would think. <laughs> would be the Earth's core, one would think. But, again, this is a this is a place where they rewrote it 
from the uh, the original story because the original story, my memory is that they just they stop the detonation in a different place. Therefore, it has a different effect, uh, which is easy. Yeah, which is easier to buy for I me. Agree. Yeah, yeah. They they block the the bomb so that it can't fall as far as it's supposed to 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 make the planet into a you know into its own little zoom cycle. <laughs> and instead, it causes a huge volcanic eruption and destroys the Daleks, etc. Well, realizing that an explosion at this point would release enough energy to draw the metallic Daleks into the Earth's core, Doctor Who asks Tom and Conway to go and attempt to deflect the bomb from the main shaft into this other shaft to send the bomb to that convergence point between the planet's magnetic poles. Right. So that it's a kid's can, film. Go with it, folks. Yeah, go yeah. With it. We're going to have to roll with this one, guys. That's all we can do. Engage circuit four. Read circuit four. Check. Commencing now. Final three. Release check. Continuing. Blast off will take place as scheduled. When the Earth's magnetic core is extracted, we can pilot this planet to the vicinity of our own and occupy it. This is obviously the main shaft bored by the Daleks, leading straight to the fracture. Now alongside it here is the original shaft of the old mine, which leads to the meeting point of the magnetic influence of the north and south poles. That shaft is boarded up now. Yes, 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 but it is my belief that if we could somehow deflect their device down the old mine, the field of magnetism so released would be powerful enough to suck the Daleks into the very core of the Earth. I know how we could deflect it. Good. Tom, you were with him. Now the rest of us must cause some sort of diversion. I'm not in the rest of us. No, I didn't think you would be. No profit in it, is there? None. See now then you do on your way what kind of a diversion are you going to make you'll know when it happens and when it does get everybody away from this area as fast as you can good luck what do you want us to do david i want you to take louise and find a good hiding place for her then help get the people away from the mine right well what about you i shall stay here but i have a reason well why can't we stay here with no, you no 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 it is time for you to go take care of her Broccoli, the black marketeer, uh, also leaves. He does not want to get involved because, you know, there's no money to be made in this. And Doctor Who sends Louise and David to help get the prisoners away from the mine because he figures there's going to be a big explosion when this goes down. Broccoli then betrays Doctor Who, leading a group of Daleks to him. And so the what I love is that Doctor Who kind of expected him to do this and uh, goes off with the Daleks just as he's supposed to, and then the Daleks just blow broccoli away. Right. <laughs> Which is what my wife calls minion abuse. <laughs> like, you're my minion, you've done me a good turn, and I'm going to kill you. Nice. Thank you, minion abuse. And like minion that. abuse results in more turning of minions against masters when said <laughs> minion abuse does not involve vaporizing them and blowing up the small shack they're in. As it does here. As it does here, yeah. Well, now now we know why that tool shed was sitting out in the middle of a field. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Much easier to blow up something with nothing around it. Exactly. 
Um, oh, to back up, uh, when um, Weiler and uh, Susan are escaping and their van gets blown up, two things. One, that's a that's a sweet van. I'm I'm kind of sad they blew it up, but also, <laughs> it was mighty convenient in 2150 to be able to find a 1960s van. And I know that in the serial, I checked this out because it seems such an odd thing. In the serial, they get a van that they use in the TV serial as well, but they actually get it out of a museum, which makes so much more sense. Uh, there you go. And it's actually being driven by Barbara, <laughs> not by a male character, as I recall. Well, Barbara that's is one, one of the things of the people I've... In- I- one of the things I've always loved about Doctor Who is that as much uh, as I will sit and, and name off the uh, female companions of Doctor Who throughout the decades that I've sat and lusted over, the women in general are always portrayed as uh, smart, clever, resourceful people. And uh, the original Barbara, the, the first you know adult female companion of the, of the entire series, she was that. I mean, she was an intelligent woman. So yeah, and she can't in the in the serial. She comes up with a lot of the plans, including the plan that is in this version executed by Doctor Who, in order to turn the the Robo Men against the Daleks. That's yeah. Barbara's idea in the original. Now she fails carrying it out, and it ends up happening later. But it's her idea, as is a lot of the, are a lot of the other good ideas. She's the one that sets up the plan that says, okay, here's how we could invade the spaceship, is, is my memory. So the the women in the show have what we now would call more agency a lot of times than the, the women in this movie have. Although Susan, you know, Susan is a much younger girl in the movies than she was in the series. And oddly enough, it's like she gets, in some sense, she's more well-treated than the the older women are in the in the stories so yeah, for yeah. whatever she's she still has as susan she still has more agency than her grown-up counterparts that are traveling with the doctor okay, which is well, weird but there you go it, it, it is weird but it's cool well as right. tom and uh conway work in the mineshaft to try to alter the bomb's trajectory from one place to the other they are discovered by a robo man and during the ensuing fight conway and the robo man fall to their desks down the shaft Tom then uses timbers that are boarding up the old shaft entrance to create a deflecting ramp and then rushes back to the surface because he's sure that this flimsy-ass thing is going to work. <laughs> and it does. because and yes, in a of course. Pretty, in a pretty darn good special effects sequence when we get to that. I, I, agree, I agree. And when we get there... Uh, I, We'll talk about that for a second. Well, Doctor Who is taken to the control room by the Daleks that have captured him, and he, there he meets uh, Weiler and Susan. So now, Weiler's uh, Andrew Keir. In case you're having trouble keeping track. Oh, yeah, Andrew Weiler Keir. is played by Andrew Keir, one of my favorite so actors. So he's still along. He's still alive. He hasn't yes. been killed along with everyone else. <laughs> well, um, Doctor Who seizes the radio link to the Robo-Men and orders them to turn against their masters, tells them to kill the Daleks, and so the Robo-Men fight the Daleks. Right, um, and and says this order cannot be countermanded, which, which is kind which of a, is, a standard turn your robots against your masters. Like, yep. Well, Doctor Who escapes with Wyler and Susan while the slave workers flee from the mine. The Daleks quickly defeat the rebellion and release their bomb into the shaft, but the device is deflected by that ramp and detonates at the pole convergence. So, uh, right, that thing which that is seems not so the center of the earth. It's somewhere near Bedfordshire, just so you know. Just so you know. 
or at least like way deep down there somewhere near it. Anyway, it's not Scartaris or any of those kind of things <laughs> in Iceland either. <laughs> or, oh, now I'm trying to remember the, the, uh, Pellucidor. So, right. Yeah. It's not that it's not Sneffels, which is the volcano, right? None of those. <laughs> None of those. It's somewhere in Bedfordshire. Just well, this of course, uh, sets off a chain reaction and the Daleks are pulled into the earth's core and destroyed while their spaceship having just taken off, is brought crashing down onto the mine and explodes. Pretty cool. And all of these are pretty expensive-looking, good special effects sequences. I, I love all of the spaceship special effects in this thing. Like I say, even when I'm looking at it and I'm going, okay, yeah, I can see the wires, it's still cool stuff. It is, and I, I honestly didn't even notice the wires. Oh, I Because I was I so focused on the fact that Look at that spaceship. It's got, it has a, like a rotating, two different rotating sets of windows and stuff. And it's kind of a, a wonderful, weird 1960s, you know, Hoover vacuum cleaner kind of design <laughs> element to it. And it's just, it's really, really cool. And it looks good every time they use it. And it looks like they, they spent some money on that sucker. Well, they did, and, and uh, it got reused. That uh, spacecraft got reused in the film *The Body Stealers*. Um, so about seven or I think about seven years later. I'm not sure I've seen that film. No, huh. it's well. How can I put this? *The Body Stealers* is not a great film. <laughs> okay, it's uh, color me shocked. It's uh, if memory serves, it's a Tygon production. I'm sorry, no, it was just uh, three years later. *The Body Stealers*, uh, 1969. Yeah, I've seen it. It ain't great. Uh, George Sanders, Maurice Evans, uh, Neil Connery. That would be Sean's brother. Yeah, it's uh, maybe it's not I have great. seen this. And if I've seen it, it's one of these that I would term unmemorable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a good. Which way is to put actually it. kind of the worst thing one can say about a, a film. In a way. I believe it was a Tygon production. And uh, that's how I have it. I have it, believe it or not, being the freak that I am, I have it on DVD, a British DVD somewhere. And um, it ain't it ain't that great. I remember, <laughs> I remember anyway, years but ago. They reused the, they reused the ship. Yeah, they reused the ship. And here's, the, here's, was, my, here's my funny memory. It doesn't memory. say this was a Tygon production, these Doctor Who films. But my memory is that they, it's essentially... The Tygon people with oh, no, no, a different... No, no, this, um, this is the company that became Amicus. Tygon was a different production. Oh, okay. All right. Different produ- but production. But Amicus happened. and Tygon are related to each other, too, though. Yeah. There's, it's like people left this one and formed this one. So, anyway, it's all related in, in ways that are too complicated for me to remember right now. But the, <laughs> and they don't I'm glad really. to hear that the spaceship was reused because it's a great spaceship. But the, uh, the fun part about um, the spaceship is that it is such a cool thing, and it is it is well used in this. And like I say, the best part about it is those earlier shots in the movie where they're matching that spacecraft to the the, the sets. It's the just sets so well map, done. Yeah. I really really like that stuff a lot. So. Yeah, this is the the one of the places where the movie is a clear cut above the original serials is in the special effects and the destruction of the Daleks in this sequence in the control room has a lot of cool stuff in it. It has Daleks falling into pits, Daleks crashing through walls because they're all being magnetically attracted to the center of the earth. It has one Dalek that crumples up like a, a can that, yeah. you know, 
between two invisible fists. I love that special effect. I'm not sure exactly how they did it. It looks great. It, looks there's really a lot of really cool stuff. I like that whole set, and I think well, it, it's almost something I'm willing to call a flaw, but it's something that I really like, so I'm willing to give the film this, which is they had such a great set for that for that whole mine set where they're, they've got the bomb wait, waiting mm-hmm. to drop it down the mine shaft that uh, at least, I think it's twice, the director just does these really long takes around the set while the Daleks are, you know, going up, you know, gliding up and down the ramps and talking to each other and giving right. us a little bit of information about what their plans are. And he's doing it so that you can see how big and impressive the set is. And honestly, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing you kind of want to give him a light slap on the wrist for kind of indulging in that. Right. But I like it. So I don't care. <laughs> Yeah, at the at the same time, he's showing off all the work they put into this set, which is a really yeah. cool set. Yeah, and again, and, and it's cool. Sets are one of the things that the original Doctor Who is not known for the greatness of its sets. You know, it's they're much better today, obviously, when we've got a lot more technology and stuff to enhance them with. But back in this day, the coolest set in Doctor Who was the TARDIS control room, which doesn't look like anything else you'd ever seen before, right. and it's kind of a weird irony that in some ways the least cool set in both of the movies is the TARDIS control room, even though it's improved greatly in this one compared to the previous. And I just, you notice I keep saying the TARDIS because that's what (laughs) they say on the TV show. And in the movies, it's just TARDIS. Well, here's the thing. I kind of understand why they probably felt that they didn't need to spend a whole lot of time on the TARDIS set because we spent almost no time there. Right. And that makes sense because, you know, you spend your money where you're going to spend your time. And right. and, and that, in this film, they have spent money on locations, on the Dalek ship, on the, the set at the mine, all yeah. of that kind of stuff. The special effects, the flying spaceship, all of these things, you know, they may have gone a little over budget on this film. This film had a much bigger budget than the original one yeah. of the original one being Doctor Who and the Daleks had much more money put into it and honestly it shows yeah 60 percent more budget sadly it did not do as well as it did not do very well at all no which i don't know i'm not sure what explains that now you said in retrospect you think you prefer the first one i yeah i I still like this one better i think it moves along at a better pace and i think the production values are so much better that i really enjoy it for that reason i know where i know exactly the end of the story yet but well, no, no, that's all right. But I can tell you right now, I know exactly why I enjoy the first film more than this one. All right, and maybe we should, why don't we finish the story okay, and then okay. you can right. tell us. Well, there's not much left because now uh, everything has exploded. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the, our uh, our intrepid time travelers prepare to return to the present in uh, in TARDIS. Tom Campbell, our constable, asked to be taken back to a few minutes before the burglary occurred. A, and uh, upon arrival, he knocks out the thieves and then drives them away in their getaway sports car, heading for the police station and an anticipated promotion. And that's it. Right. Yeah, he talks about being OBE, which is Order of the British Empire, because he stopped this this big robbery single-handed and stuff. And it's it's a funny, lighthearted scene at the end in a, an earned way, unlike the lighthearted Robo-Men scenes earlier. Yeah. I don't and mind a, the humor here at a, the end because it works. Because it's, it, you're right, it's earned. And it's a good cap to the film. Now, 
it's really interesting that the ending of this is so different from the ending of the original serial that I, I think it's worth remarking on. Okay. Because in the serial, you have to remember that in the serial, Susan, the doctor's granddaughter, is a much older character. She is in her mid to late teens. So she's she's actually a young woman rather than, uh, I think this gal was somewhere probably between 8 and 10. If I had to guess, I haven't looked up her I age. I thought she was 11 or 12, but okay. She might, might be a Maybe. little older, but she's a prepubescent girl. Right. And the doctor's granddaughter in the original series is not a prepubescent girl. She's a lo- young woman. She starts on the young age, and as by the time they get to here, it's pretty clear that yeah, if we were pretending she was a 16-year-old being 12, played by a 24-year-old now, she's, <laughs> she's 27. She's clearly pretty pretty womanly at this point. Yep. During the whole serial, she has been thrust together with a young, handsome rebel guy that she becomes very fond of during the course of the storyline. And, Rob, plug your ears if I'm going to spoil this for you here. <laughs> if you don't remember it from your last I, I already know. I already know that this is the episode where they let Susan exit the show. Right. Susan leaves the show. She's fallen in love with this guy, but at the same time, she's not willing to give up her life with her grandfather for this guy. Right. And in a kind of a very strange moment in the show... The doctor makes the decision for her. He decides she's only coming with him because she's worried about him and her heart really is with this guy. And he locks her out of the TARDIS and gives her a little speech about how she should follow her heart and not worry about him. And someday he'll come back and she should leave, live her life as she should, as she knows he would live her, his in her circumstances and leaves her. We're making her the first companion departure on the original Doctor Who show, which is a very surprising ending and had to be at the time for the ongoing characters. It's like, suddenly, one of the characters is gone. It's gone, yeah. And we get a nice Bill Hartnell speech that they actually recapped, I think, in the 20th or 25th anniversary show, where he says, I'll come back. Someday I'll come back. Until then, and, and it's a wonderful little acting moment for him. But it's also again, kind of caps off a dark serial with kind of a, a dark but light moment and presages the fact that in the future, the doctor's going to leave people behind and there are going to be companions over the years that die and there are going to be companions that don't end up in the, in the best of places and stuff. And that all starts at that point in the show before we even have a lot of the mythology of the Time Lords and regeneration and all that kind of stuff. And that's something that uh, if you're a Doctor Who fan and you've never seen these films before, that's another hurdle for you, I think, to a degree, which is when you walk into these movies, they are so completely different. It's not the Doctor Who you know, but also this is before we had Time time Lords and Regenerations and a lot of the things that... Or it's before that that was so well known that they couldn't disassociate it with it. And we talked in the first film about them making the decision... In the, in the show, he was always an alien of some type, even if they hadn't delineated that. Therefore, his granddaughter was too. But in, the, in these movies, they decided that he would merely be an eccentric human inventor and that his name would be Doctor Who, the, last, the surname being Who. And in the, the television show, that's the joke. The joke is he's the doctor. 
and everyone says Doctor Who, and the reply is he's the Doctor, he's the one. Right. But they they seem to think that that was too complex an idea <laughs> for the movie <laughs> audience to wrap their brains around, especially in the U.S., where people had not seen the Daleks and had not seen the Doctor Who serials. Certainly, it was you know before I caught my first fuzzy glimpse of a Doctor Who serial on a, a UHF channel out of Worcester uh, in, in Massachusetts, it was probably another five, six, seven years after this film came out. And I didn't did see you, the film. Did you run. take a look at the trailer, the theatrical trailer for this film? I did. They don't even mention Doctor Who in the trailer. Right. Well, and that's, you know, the interesting thing, as you mentioned at the beginning, the people that made this film, they weren't licensing Doctor Who, per se. They were licensing the Daleks. The monster. The monster. And God bless Terry Nation. He was ahead of his time and had a creator piece of the Daleks and creative control of them. And so he ended up, you know, he talked about in, in some of the interviews about, you know, this being films, they made as many, as much of the residuals as they would have owed him go away as they possibly could. Yes, exactly. He still, he still did get some money in the end from his creation of the Daleks. And that's a, and that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. That's, you know, creators should get money for their, for what they've done. You know, whether it's uh, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee or whether it's Bob Kane and Bill Finger for Batman or whether it's Tony Isabella for Black Lightning, which just premiered. Yep. It's a, a great thing when, the people that created the work actually see some of the fruits of the work, especially in films and television where the, the money is so big compared to, you know, the 30, 50, a hundred dollars a page you might be getting as a comic book writer. Well, so I have a question for you. Like I say, I, I find myself enjoying the first of these two movies more than the second. And I can tell you exactly why. And it's, uh, it pertains directly to why I enjoy older Doctor Who more than the modern Doctor Who. There's a, I guess you might say, kitschy nature to why I love it. I like the heightened artificiality of the set-bound stories, the 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 striving to create a, a fake place in a very artificial way. That part of Doctor Who, whether it was intentional not or not, uh, or just a part of how the show had to be produced at the budget, you know, at the budgetary level that they had to produce it. That is an intrinsic part of my enjoyment of the show is I like the fact, even when sometimes the, 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 uh, shoestring budgets kind of break occasionally, they kind of, right. When the sets wobble and the, you see the, right. The stunt man's feet under the monster. So one of the things I loved most about the first movie is that, there was a lot of that feel to it, that whole huge set of, uh, you know, the, the alien planet and the, uh, the alien city where the Daleks lived and all of the stuff that takes place in that feels like Doctor Who to me. And it feels like Doctor Who with a larger budget and in color at a time when Doctor Who wasn't in color yet. Right, not and, for another half dozen years almost, I think, probably. Oh, well, not until 1970. So, right. What we have in these two films, or at least in that first film, is what I like about Doctor Who, but at a bigger budget and widescreen and 
I love that aspect of it. But the there's less of that in this second movie. A lot of this movie shot on locations in real places. And although right. the Doctor Who show occasionally does that, it still manages to retain that kind of threadbare feeling. Well, that's of, because they, they couldn't do it very often. And when they right. did it, it was expensive. And exactly. I think I read that this serial was the first serial that they actually shot any of on location. So, But still, most I, of it is built on sets. And you can see it, and there's it's clear they're sets. And that's, since you brought this up, this is one of the things that I do love about Doctor Who 2, is their creativity was always at odds with the budget, and the creativity pretty much always won. Yes. That they always figured out some way that they could make this work, even though they really didn't have the money to make it work. Yeah. For me, the reason I like the second movie better than the first one is because I think it uses its license as a movie to be more movie-like. The first one for me, it's almost like you took a stage play and you shot the stage play without trying to turn the stage play in the, into a movie. So you didn't take advantage of the things that movies can do better than television, or in some sense, the fact that the, the budget was bigger, so you could maybe stage this a different way and do it a different way. It's almost like they, they shot in the same frame as the television show. Yeah, I and see while what you're I saying. can I can see why you find why you can find that charming, and it I does do. resemble. I find it very charming. Yeah, it, and it resembles the show more than the second one does in terms of just production values. What I like about the second one is that it does exceed what was then the television show production values. It it has better special effects. It has location shooting. It has all of that stuff that the the TV show just couldn't, it's shot on film, <laughs> yeah. which the TV show couldn't even afford film. And that's one of the reasons they didn't go out of the studio is because every time they went out of the studio, they had to shoot on film and film was expensive and videotape wasn't. And, and that's why one of the reasons I like this film better than the first one is because it doesn't feel stage bound to me in the same way that, you know, reaching into other monster kid things. I love Dracula, the original Dracula with Lugosi. Yeah. But so much of it feels so stage bound because they did adapt it from a stage play. So you get character and rather than seeing the hordes of rats or even a suggestion of the hordes of rats streaming across the lawn, you've got Dwight Fry looking toward the camera, describing the hordes of rats. And I'm thinking, Oh, this is a movie. <laughs> you could have showed us the hordes of rats. You could have showed us an intimation of the hordes of rats, the escaping wolves, all the stuff we're not seeing. Because you're a movie, you don't have to stay within those four walls that you built on the set. Even if you, you know, your budget isn't the best. The early parts of Dracula were they're in the countryside and the coach is riding across the countryside and we're in Dracula's castle. That all feels much less stage-bound than the latter parts of Dracula. Well, now, and here's the, the thing. So it sounds like we're we're arguing the same point, but from different hilltops. But we're reaching different conclusions. Yeah. Right. I, I like the first film more because it feels more like Doctor Who to me, and you feel, you like the second one more because it feels more like a film. So you're wrong. And <laughs> <laughs> well, I that. 
I, I think we'll leave, leave it to the listeners to determine that you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, now here's the thing. There's a, there's another uh, major problem I have with this second film that I didn't have with the first film and that uh, we've already kind of addressed it a little bit, which is that um, there's not enough Doctor Who in this Doctor Who movie for me. Right. And, and I, I can totally see that. And I know, you know, like I say, I know why they did. They had to do some rewrites. Um, they lost a couple of days. Uh, and, and I didn't realize that. I've, I've never really thought about it that way. Yeah, here's the, I, here's I, the details on it. Um, filming was interrupted due to illness on Cushing's part. Although Sabotsky and uh, Fleming, the director, uh, restructured the schedule and set construction to take into account his absence, work nevertheless ground to a halt for two days before Cushing returned. The production company uh, duly collected 30,000 pounds compensation from their insurance company. The only person who seemed happy about it was uh, Bernard Cribbins because it allowed him to uh, indulge in his passion for fishing. So (laughs) (laughs) So, I know why there's not enough Doctor Who in this movie, but the movie still suffers for it in my eyes. I, I can see that, but honestly, the film moves fast enough and it's short enough that I, I didn't really notice. And it follows, essentially, it follows the, the serial storylines, too. Which, there are whole... If this happens, I think, especially in some of the longer Doctor Who episodes, especially maybe with Bill Hartnell, occasionally, who was, who was at the time, an older person, even though, you know, yeah. as noted earlier, he's my age. <laughs> that they would have spaces where they didn't need him, and have the companions carry the show along for a good chunk of the time just because of his physical limitations. You know, and he had some health problems that I don't remember exactly yeah, what yeah. they were. There's heart-lung-related problems, I think. So the fact that it carries over that into the movie from the television show, again, it, it, it doesn't bother me. I think it works okay as a movie, and I think it, it worked okay on the television show. And even when they do it nowadays, there's uh, I was watching a recent Doctor Who and uh, Peter Capaldi and and, uh, Stephen Moffat, they were talking about there's like episodes they write of Doctor Who that are to have minimal doctors in them, right? (laughs) So even today, they'll kind of give the star an occasional break. And I I realize that's not a probably a great thing in a movie where, especially where Peter Cushing is clearly the headline, headline, even though we've got Andrew Keir and, you know, and we've got uh, Roberta Toby, who's again a, a wonderful young actress. In fact, in the first film, the director promised her every time she got a take and a shot in one take, he'd give her a shilling. And she wasn't sure he, she thought she he was just kidding. But at the end of the show, end of the uh, the movie, he came to her with a bag full of shillings for all the takes she'd gotten right off the bat. And she said, "I was a little disappointed he didn't do that with the second movie." <laughs> because clearly he didn't he didn't think she needed the incentive he knew she could do it at this point you're a veteran you just have to work right you just have to work and she still had that bag full of i think it was 21 shillings which is just wouldn't you what a great souvenir that is to have from doctor who so anyway even with all these people it's still yeah i can see it would have been nice to have a little more cushing it's always and, nice. And the, my third complaint about this film, and like I say, it's not that I hate the film, it's just that I, I like it less than the first. And my, my third complaint is, as we've already addressed, I don't like the comedy stuff in it because it 
it disrupts the tone of the story for me. The, for me, the comedy stuff, I'm honestly the the one that bothers me most is that look right at the camera take early on. Yeah, the Roboman comedy stuff. It's annoying, but for me, it's just a break in the longer storyline. And to compare the two. There are stretches in the other film, which I, I haven't looked up, but I'm pretty sure is a longer running time. And maybe not much, but yeah. Yeah. Where it just seems like nothing is happening. Like they're just waiting for the next thing to happen. And that, that may be when they're traveling through the, the swamps and they didn't have the budget for the monsters or, or whatever it happened to be. Yeah, there, those, there those stretches were, are a problem where they had to, uh, where they they cut out the monsters because they didn't feel they looked good enough in the first film. Right, and I'd I'd rather have a couple of, you know, and it's literally only a couple of minutes, maybe five minutes, possibly ten, but I don't think it's that long of, of, kind of maybe not quite appropriate comedy, which we had not quite appropriate comedy in the other one too, where because they turned the competent character into a clown character in the in the form of Ian. That's true. The comedy elements for the for the two of them balance out for me. And I think the filmmaking elements and the fact that overall this one moves at a better clip makes this one for me the better one. Now again, we both enjoy both of these films immensely. Yeah. Otherwise we wouldn't be here on the Bloody Pit talking about them. Precisely. So it always comes down to small quibbles. I, for me, if you said, I'm going to watch something to see what Doctor Who is like, and I'm going to watch one of the movies, which one would you take? Which one should I watch? I'd say watch the second one. Because I feel like, again, it's more of a movie, even if it still has the trouble with Doctor Who. It's not really Doctor Who. He's, <laughs> Doctor Who is not the Doctor. He's Doctor Surname Who. Which and is, I would suggest watching the first one just because there's more Doctor Who. There's more of the main character and you get a whole lot of Daleks in both movies. But, you know, hey, either way, I mean, like I say, we're standing on different hills looking into the same valley and describing it. So, Right. Well, and, and we're it's basically it comes down to a personal preference. So in what you prefer in the two movies in relationship to the original versus what I prefer in the two movies. Yep. in relationship to the original. And they're both valid valid points of view, and both of us really, really like the original series. You um, know, I, and, I, One more point of interest that I think is kind of cool, um, Philip Mardock, the actor who played uh, the Black Marketeer, uh-huh. uh, he, this was his first appearance in anything Doctor Who, but he later appeared in four different of the TV shows, two, the TV stories. He was in two separate um, Patrick Troughton stories, the Crotons and the War Games, and then he was in two separate Tom Baker stories, the Brain of Morbius and the Power of Kroll. Oh, so, and I, I just watched Brain of Morbius just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I so haven't seen in, those in a while. I know this guy. Where do I know him from? And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't come up with that. But he's, you know, he's a British character actor, and there was always work on Doctor Who for British character actors, especially if you didn't mind having your character killed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And apparently he played four different characters. So what the heck? Right. Exactly. Now, as you so, said, this cool. film did not do well. So um, there, w- there was a planned third film. They were going to adapt the uh, the TV story, The Chase, uh, which I've also seen, but not since the VHS days. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, I think I'm the I'm in the same 
position. That's one of the ones that's out of print on DVD now, so I haven't yeah. seen it since Channel 11 in Chicago aired it in the early to mid-1980s, probably. But since, of course, this didn't do as well as the first film, they did not do a third movie. So this was the last, um, as of, I guess, 52 years ago now, the last Doctor Who feature film. And likely to remain so, I'm, I'm afraid. Probably so. And I'm, I'm sad about that. You know, I mean, as a Doctor Who fan, it's, an, it's endlessly annoying that it's not really the Doctor. But at the same time, having big screen versions of things you think are cool at TV... Current remake craziness aside, it's kind of cool to see things make it from small screen to big screen. See it, see what they've decided to do. The Quatermass films are another example of that. Yes, where it's just it's wonderful to see what they chose to do and what they could do with the original source material. And these are both of these films are examples of that. It's it's nice to see Doctor Who on the big screen. At the time, it would have been wonderful to see Doctor Who and the Daleks in color. I can imagine why people wanted to see that. And I'm not sure why people didn't go to this movie the way they went to the first one. It may have been, uh, I'm just speculating, it may have been the, the time it was released versus what was going on in the world or any number of other things. A lot of what I've read is that uh, people feel that kind of a little bit of Dalek fatigue had set in by that point because it had been such a big thing for three or four years at that, at that point. And so after, you know, after something is in the public eye for a long enough period of time, the, the luster does kind of wear off and And I think that 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 may have something to do with it. Something that breaks really big that way, that can happen amazingly quickly Yeah, because the Batman TV show, which was huge, huge and I, you know, I lived through that I re- that's a very fond childhood memory Batman lasted three seasons three seasons yeah on television and the third season they basically cut it in half and reduced no more cliffhangers one and one villain everything and all the they slashed the budget so it's like suddenly they're in front of black curtains with things hanging from the ceiling as opposed to actual sets three years from the Batusi to cancel it can and, happen that quickly yeah and it's entirely possible that even though the daleks rolled on in the television series to this day as the most popular doctor who foe when you have as many toys and games and all the other merchandising that they had with these people got tired of it after a while which is sad but but yeah that that happens and filmmaking as much as you and i want it to be about art and making cool stuff to show other people. It's about Same commerce. Word. It's always about the money. Yeah. <laughs> it's but always. I don't, I don't mind it because if, if, if what had to happen was the Daleks become less popular and the, the, the BBC show decide to let those characters, you know, go fallow for a while. If that's what, if that's what we had to have to get the amazing Dalek stories that we then got in the seventies, I'm cool with that because things like Genesis of the Daleks is just brilliant stuff. And I'm so glad that, you know, they, they always were finding ways to bring the Daleks back in interesting ways. It wasn't the the Daleks never became that thing on the show where it's like, Oh crap, here come the Daleks again. Yay. No, no, no. Every time they showed up, they really were bringing out the big guns. Writers were doing their best to really carve their initials on the side of those giant pepper pots and make something that would last. 
And some of that is a credit to Terry Nation because he actually wouldn't let them use them as often as they wanted to. And the, you you know mentioned Genesis of the Daleks and the Destiny of the Daleks. I think those yeah. were the two in the Tom Baker era. Tom Baker was Doctor Who for seven years yeah. and only yeah. has two Dalek episodes. And those are the ones. And those, my understanding is that Terry Nation would not let the BBC use them. They didn't want to pay his licensing fee or whatever it was. There was some kind of squ- squabble with him. And he was like, well, if you're not going to treat me right, I'm going to withhold the, your most popular characters that I created from you for this time, and I'm only going to let them be on screen if I write the write the stuff. Again, I, I, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it would have been would have been nice to have more Tom Baker episodes with the Daleks in a way, but the two we got. Oh man, <laughs> they're great ones. Well, I'm um, I'm not sure where you and I go from here now that we've talked about these two films. I have no idea what else we might have in common that we both enjoy that we could talk about on a podcast. So. I'm nothing. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. This is. <laughs> God knows, I've never started watching more Nashy films because of you. Oh so. no, of course not. That's that'll never happen. Oh, did I tell you my 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 Nashy tragedy? Oh my I goodness! Went to, What's your Nashy tragedy? I went tragedy? to watch Frankenstein's Bloody Terror at the end of last year. Right. Got the got the box down off the shelf. Took it to the DVR, uh, the DVD player, to play it. Open the box. And the disc is missing. Oh, my God. And I have no idea where it is. And, of course, it is one of the ones that is now out of print. And it's out of print. Yeah. You're, it's going to be, oof, I don't know how you'll get a copy of that again. Because one of the, re, well, one of the sad facts of that being out of print is that's got a really great commentary track from uh, Sam Sherman. Right. Yeah. And I was really in the mood. To, I thought, I'm going to watch all the Nashies. I'm going to start with that one again and i'm gonna go through the the now that some of the ones are out on blu-ray that i you know i'll watch them in order again and it's just gone and it i remember when i last played it vaguely and i remember someone taking it out of the dvd player and laying it down on a pile of nearby discs and apparently just never got back in the case and i put the case away and the thing is i probably have five thousand dvds (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when you when you count the ones that i've store bots along with the ones that i've recorded on my own off of tcm and their other sources yeah and i looked everywhere i could think of to find this sucker so you know you being the guy that does commentaries and stuff if you could urge the manufacturer <laughs> to bring this back into print well and blu-ray I, let's I just say that um, sincerely appreciate that my yeah. brother Here's the thing. Um, I don't have any specific knowledge, but uh, there are several Nashi films that are on their way for, on Blu-ray that'll be coming out. If not, if not this year, actually, I think most of them will probably show up sometime this year. And honestly, I would not be shocked considering that um, it's already come out on DVD here in this country. I wouldn't be surprised if Frankenstein's Bloody Terror ended up being one of those or my preferred title for that would be Mark of the Wolfman, his, uh, right. his first werewolf film. Right. But, and God knows I'd love to see Fury of the Wolfman, even though I know that's a terrible one. It's com- of- that one's coming. That one's already been announced. Uh, awesome. On blue? Yes, on blue. Oh, uh, finally. <laughs> <laughs> it's, see what it's supposed to movie, look like rather than the... Oh, 
God, Terrible let's not let's not derail man. this. But I will. I do have a way to 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 segue from Nashy back to Doctor Who, which is I was recently <laughs> recently pulled into a conversation on Facebook about. Uh, Paul Nashy because uh, Tim uh, Tim Lucas was talking about having watched uh, Werewolf and the Yeti for the first time in years, mm-hmm. and I got pulled into it by another friend asking a specific question about uh, kind of a uh, an aspect of the story, and uh, in my response, I, I I related the fact that for years now I've referred to Valdemar Daninsky, uh, Paul Nashy's werewolf character, as kind of the Doctor Who of lycanthropy. <laughs> because he, because he seems to be able to show up in any place, any uh, time period, right. and uh, you know just kind of you know start over from one and become a werewolf in a wholly different way this time. It doesn't right. ma- it doesn't matter what came before because it's a completely different thing. Right. And uh, the karma is a bitch. <laughs> yes, exactly. It doesn't matter. Apparently, a werewolf bitch. So yeah, it doesn't matter what happens to him, how good or bad he is. He's going to end up getting screwed with a, a, a werewolf curse one way or another. And uh, I've just uh, as soon as it occurred to me years ago that he was kind of you know this sad werewolf Doctor Who figure. It just <laughs> it won't go, it won't get out of my head. So so there you go. We're back at, back to Doctor Who. We talked about things that you and I share in common that maybe in future. We could do. Yeah, I know you've talked about doing um, redoing some of the early Nashy films on the the Nashy cast and with Troy. And anytime yeah. you want me, brother, I, I'll rewatch a film and be there for you. Except oh, apparently Frankenstein's bloody terror. <laughs> <laughs> well, later this year, I have to say, uh, we are going to be doing some more. Um, we're going to be having some more guests onto the show because we're, uh, you know, that that's how we're going to push the show forward because we do want to cover or recover some of the older films as they come out on Blu-ray and therefore people have more access to be able to kind of play along at home. But we also want to involve other people's voices and other people's opinions to kind of uh, give us new ways of looking at the films as well. So expect, uh, expect a phone call or an email about that sometime in the next uh, six months, I'd say. That'd be awesome. And anything else you want to talk about with me, you know, I mean, Assuming it's monster movies <laughs> or science fiction. <laughs> One or the other. It's, you know, I mean, it, I suppose we could do a, an entire podcast about what trees we love, too. But that, I don't <laughs> think that's going to have as wide an audience as Doctor Who or Paul Nashy, So No, no, not at all. Well, Steve, before we go, uh, tell the good people where they can find you and what you're up to these days. Every two weeks on my site, sdsullivan.com or stephendsullivan.com, I am releasing a new chapter of Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors, which is a Hammer-slash-Universal-inspired monster serial about a vampire, a werewolf, and a mummy. And if I were a little more slick, I could give you my elevator pitch for it. I think the the pitch is the a vampire and a, a mummy battle over a unique family business that just happens to employ a werewolf in Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors. So that's going on. People can check that out. If they want to give me some money for it, they can go to CushingHorrors.com, check into my Patreon. If they pay a dollar a month, the stuff comes to you. Two dollars a month, you get it in advance to everyone else. So those are the main projects. But, uh, I've also got lots of other things coming out. I'm writing a new set of kind of animated kids storybooks for a Korean company called Little Fox, which teaches Korean kids and others to learn English, too. So lots of stuff always going on. So people, be like me 
and go be a Patreon of Stephen D. Sullivan. That would be awesome. You know, if <laughs> if I could get a thousand people to give me a buck a month, it would be a wonderful thing. <laughs> if I could get ten thousand people, it'd be a really wonderful thing, and then I'd start producing <laughs> Joshua Kennedy and Christopher R. Mims movies. So. You're reminding me of an old Steve Martin joke where he, uh, on stage, calculates how much money he could make if he made everybody in the theater pay a million dollars a ticket. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I don't need a million dollars. I'd only need one million dollar ticket right now to do a lot of good with. Oh, and I should mention that the um, Joshua Kennedy's Theseus and the Minotaur came out recently on DVD, and that is my first actual film credit. I helped Josh with the writing on, on that and helped flesh out some of the scenes and some of the characters and stuff. And it's a really rollicking good film. So well, people can find news, that. For, man. Yeah, people can find that for like, I think it's about six bucks on oldies.com. And maybe it's on Amazon by now, too. It just came out right at the end of last year. Give the title again. Theseus and the Minotaur. Cool. Which is weird and ironic because 35 years ago, the first computer game that I worked on, the TSR, TSR, the Dungeons and Dragons people completed. Then we only did three before they shut down the entire division saying computer games will never make any money. That's a direct quote. <laughs> the first one we did was also called Theseus and the Minotaur. So life is strange and circular. I guess so. Steve, thank you very much, man. Oh, it's been a, it's been a great pleasure. Let's do it again soon. Let's find find something else that we love that maybe doesn't get enough love and talk about it. Good idea. We'll talk to you again soon. Busy being Alfred on Gotham, Gotham. yeah, which we don't watch anymore because it got—it just got too dark for us. Oh man, I'm—I've got the most recent few episodes backed up on the DVR, but I love it. (laughs) Love Gotham. He he and the young Batman were the reason that we were watching that for a long time. That's the point where I felt like we're just watching, waiting for more characters we like to get killed or turned into dark, evil representations of themselves. like the walking dead for me it just got to the point where it was just too too fatalistic toward characters out of that, that i liked yeah and, but none of those characters ever die they come back in some weird <laughs> version of themselves that's the beauty i know there was there was a story digressing even further there was a, a story <laughs> that was written by uh, i don't think it was alan moore i think it might have been neil game and there was a story in the the 80s in which it was in one of the batman annuals or something like that it was like batman family a big anthology of some kind that had a lot of batman stories and it was about and it was the riddler talking kind of to himself and t- kind of the audience and kind of to batman and i don't remember a lot more about the story but he was talking about 
how all his other friends had gone dark and evil and were they were killing people now and the, all the fun of taunting Batman had gone out of it and that kind of stuff and that they knew that pretty soon whatever gods were doing this to everyone he knew were going to come and get him too and suddenly he was going to become a homicidal maniac and Gotham reminded me of that story it was like oh man the Riddler why did, why did you have to kill that girl <laughs> oh come well, on see, guy I was, I, was, I was in your corner until you became a homicidal maniac well, see that that points out. Talk about a digression. Um, <laughs> that that's one of the things that I have a, a problem with with a lot of uh, quote unquote fans of Batman who idolize the 1960s TV series just a bit too much. Which is that the people who made the 1960s TV series had no respect for the characters. Um, they talked so badly about it the entire time they were making it. It was. I mean, and it's evident in the product. I mean, they made a, a giant joke out of it, which, you know, is a perfectly valid way to go with this, you know, with that kind of thing. I get it. But the it was that, a that, set, that set the table for writers in the 70s to try desperately to breathe some reality into it and try to make it something that you could take seriously again. And you could argue, yeah, okay, okay, eventually it did go so dark and so violent and so i mean just look at the dark knight returns and that's really kind of the the apex of that of that take on trying to ratchet it back into something reality based but the um problem i have is that that's a reaction and that's the furthest reaction and it's a reaction away from the 60s tv series and so right. what you have is i think we're still at that that end of the reaction from the TV series. Oh, we're not. In, if you're reading a lot the of the media, if you're, not, if you're reading the modern comics, it's not that way, and it hasn't been for a long, long time. They've tried. I mean, there have been slight, slightly more strong pendulum swims and swings in either direction, but the uh, the uh, <laughs> let's just say that they DC has learned the the wisdom of having divergent versions of Batman. There are Batman '66 comic books now, and there are uh, there's like a, a new Dark Knight sequel, and uh, there are all gradations in between. So you can find the Batman that best fits your version of what you want him to be. Just takes you know looking along the shelf. Boy, right. we've we've well, really and, and you know, in, in defense of '66, the um, the comics at that point had swung into a kind of a very strange, highly kiddified version of Batman and Robin with the trophy yeah. rooms and all that kind of stuff. So in some ways, and, the yeah. the television show wasn't that far off from a lot of the stuff that was being published. Now, ironically, because everyone chases a winner, once they went there, the comics went there even more. Yeah, and then it ended up being up to people like Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams to try to drag Batman and the Batman back to a middle ground where you could you could do more serious work, where you could introduce Ra's al Ghul and Talia and all those kind of characters and Man Bat and yeah, all kind of characters that are kind of now iconic from the the late Silver Age in Batman. You know, all of this is getting chopped out, right? <laughs> 